0: for it
1: The low frequencies in the song are just crazy. That was a good tune. I, I, I was listening to it through the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I figured you were. How do you feel being back in Canada?
0: It's so bittersweet, man. Yeah? This isn't the first time you and I have seen each other. No. It kind of feels like it because it's been so long. We, we tried so hard to hang out before I went away. It felt like if we were lucky, we would we'd get together once a month, once every six weeks. And then over the summer, it was like, man, I miss you. Yeah. It's been four months. And now we've seen each other twice inside of like 72 hours. And it's still bittersweet. You'd yeah. think it would it'd peter off by, by now, but it really hasn't because, well, London is London, which is great in London <laughs> in its own ways. So it's like that anywhere. But you know what, man? You, you said it yourself and you hit the nail on the head just a couple days ago when I was trying to articulate the bittersweetness for the first time. Living in Europe for the summer, the best summer of my life was a suspension of reality. I didn't have to pay a lot of bills. My flat was paid for. Mm -hmm. The car rentals were easy to cover. Rented eight cars, drove over 15,000 kilometers, got a lot of help with the gas. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Got help with the round trip. All we did was like you know go out and have fun on the weekends and then go out for fellow dinners and I'd go around Germany making talks and it it was just incredible it was a dream it had everything in it as well it was filled with the highest highs and it had a bunch of lows too but you know what it um it really uh showed me what's most important in my life to just get away from everything for a while and not worry about the things that I tend to worry about, mm-hmm. it really allowed me to explore the things that I really want to focus on for the rest of my life. The biggest one is my partner, mm-hmm. Christina, now my fiancé. Congrats. Thanks, man. Ah, man. I can't put that one into words. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even begin to describe how happy I am. I'm over the moon. Mm-hmm. I just moved half of my belongings into her house here in London, and the rest of it's going to go to <laughs> Kingston. So that's, that's part of the bittersweetness is knowing that I'm going to have to get going. But Christina took the cake this summer. And then in a very close second was the professional development. The Center for Advanced Internet Studies was just amazing. The people were so good. And it allowed me to to focus on my research in a, in a way that let me personally identify with the things that I really value the most. I think what the challenge was before that, Derek, was... Convincing myself that some of the theoretical points that I was interested in that I cultivated interest throughout my PhD were the kinds of things that I could build a career off of Germany and the colleagues that I had allowed me the time and the space I needed to really Like fundamentally explore what it is that means the most to me as a professional researcher so that That was hugely important and then thirdly Living in the Ruhrgebiet on a daily basis. was just awesome. The heat sucked like Uh I know it's it's been hot (laughs) and no AC, right? <clears throat> no, we see they don't believe in air conditioning. So by the time you get up and you go into the office and you know, hang out with a bunch of awesome people all day who are sweating buckets and aren't doing work because it's so hot, you don't have the energy to cook. You turn the burner on inside of an apartment that's like 42, 43 degrees. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna eat. You eat yeah. once a day yeah. and then you just you hold all of it. Yeah. And then when it finally gets cool at eleven PM you go down to the Bermuda Dryak, the triangle, and you just you drink.
1: Wow, so like that's a that's a very like typical German thing, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I won't stereotype an entire population here, but when you're living in the Ruhrgebiet, the industrial heartland of Germany, and you're in Bochum, mm. the most popular thing to do is to go to this this triangle triangular strip, I should say, of restaurants and bars. Yeah, and it's just hopping. Yeah, the whole summer, there's people there all night. They just don't go home. They drink till the sun comes up. Some of them go to work. Some <laughs> of them go home and back to bed. And I got to experience a little bit of all of it. Mm. It was really, really
1: cool. Some of our listeners might not have listened to the last few episodes, and they don't know that you went to Germany. What were you doing there? I didn't
0: even announce that I really went no. in any of our podcasts, so I appreciate you asking. Back in September of last year, our dear friend and colleague Ben Muller sent me An application that was circulating to do a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies in Bochum, Germany. The center is its own legal entity. They have direct funding from the taxpayers through the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, and what their central purpose is is to support international researchers on the work that they're already doing. Mm. So if you're doing work that's related to the internet in any capacity, big data, algorithms, social media, you name it, surveillance, privacy. You send in an application and you tell them about what it is that you're doing. And then you say, I would love for you guys to support the work that I'm already doing for somewhere between one to four months. And in that time, it will allow me to do this, perhaps focus on that, publish this, get in touch with these kinds of people that I normally can't get in touch with at home or I don't have the time to get in touch with and the only commitment is to just attach their name to anything that you publish. If you give a guest talk, mention them, and give one talk once in a while at the center or perhaps neighboring universities. The Center for Advanced Internet Studies is supported by five local universities that are all in very close proximity to one another, which was incredible. So every time you give a guest talk at the center, a colloquium, you've got a whole bunch of amazing people from different fields coming in, not just sociologists like you and I, but computer scientists, computer engineers, data forensics people, people who are there for the passion of studying the internet. And so you add in a collegial atmosphere at something like KAIS, the Center for Advanced Internet Studies, and it's just bliss. It was the most important professional component of my entire career, and personally as well.
1: Bliss, that sounds, that sounds uh, a very strong, coming from a scholar. I can't wait
0: to get back out.
1: So you would recommend that for other researchers?
0: For anybody that's interested, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to check out www.cais.nrw. Check out the call for applications. They come out three to four times a year. And give it, give it what you got. Even mm. if you don't have a lot of time, it doesn't really take that much to put an application together. It's very specific. I know the wording and the instructions word by word because I helped with the translation. Mind you, I wasn't doing a lot of the German to English, but I was checking <laughs> over the English after using the deepl.com algorithm. Mm-hmm. Tell them what it is that you're thinking about, and if they can get you out there, they will. And I would bet a lunch and a dinner on it that you won't find a better place as a young or even as an established researcher to just find the quiet and the collegiality that you need to get a real project moving.
1: We often need that uh, in this field. We need the, the moments of decompression of, uh, you know, less noise around you, quite literally, to actually do some some work.
0: It's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So you had a great summer in Germany. Did you travel around? Uh, you mentioned the, the, the Alps and your, your trip um, to get engaged. Um, but where else did you go?
0: We rented nine cars this summer. Nine. And the bare minimum we drove, Derek, was 15,000 kilometers. It has to be closer to 17 and a half. And that's not including the trains that, that mm. we took. So mm. we were in Austria twice, three times. No, that's not true. We were in Austria twice. We were in France and Strasbourg. We went to at least pass through every state, every 15, every one of the 15 states in Germany, if I can try that again, at least once. Mm -hmm. And we just visited friends, Mm -hmm. visited universities, checked out UNESCO heritage sites. We must have seen four or five of them. Went on castle tours, went to amazing restaurants, Rhine River tour. Hanging out in the Alps as much as we possibly could. Hung out with Christina's relatives in Dachau and Fungstadt, which is close to Darmstadt, which is close to Frankfurt. It's a part of Germany that not a lot of people know about. Fungstadt's got like maybe 15,000 people in it. I could be a little bit off on that, but it feels like a village. Mm -hmm. It's got, you know, one nail parlor. It's got one restaurant, Mm -hmm. which is also a brewery. And they make the f- famous Funschotta beer. Spent a lot of time there. <clears throat> it was amazing. I did everything. It's uh, I, I couldn't tell you everything that we saw and did in, yeah. inside of a podcast. It's not yeah. possible. Yeah. But it was it was all amazing, especially because we got to see so many of the friends and the family that we've 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 made over the years. You know, it's um, it's it's a really great place for me and Christina specifically because we have fam- family and friends all over Germany. And I, I couldn't think of a better time in my life to to go and see all of them. But it it certainly makes the trip go quickly when you're on the road that much. Yeah,
1: you were gone for four months. It it did feel like uh, it was much shorter than that. Um, but then when you're back, it's just like, hold, you were gone for for four months, and and uh, having you back is great. Thanks, man. It's great to be back. It's awesome to be sitting here in your office.
0: You weren't in this office before I left, though. You no, were somewhere else. I was else. in a little
1: dungeon on the other side <laughs> of campus. Uh, a little, uh, I, I called it the dungeon, but it was really like a closet in the basement of uh, King's University College. Um, but now I feel like I have uh, a, an actual office.
0: How did you finagle this anyway? I don't
1: know. They put a call out and I said, please, please, please <laughs> give me a better, something a little bit more. But I'm grateful and humbled to be uh, in, in an what i think is an actual office now
0: and you're you're right across the hallway from our good friend ben
1: yeah volume three shout out of ben out, and expect more of of ben uh on the podcast because now he's across the hall so i know when he's in office i can always catch him now well he can't elude us for very long if he tries
0: he's gonna get a headlock (laughs) from at least one of us Uh, this this is a great office it it is really happy for you uh, yeah it's really cool
1: it's a great spot, and hopefully, I'll be here for many, many years, because um, I don't want to move again. <laughs> <laughs> I hate moving, um, but I wanted to ask you about your project that you were that you were doing and and starting in Bochum. We've talked about this off air, but I, I kind of wanted this episode to be more more Tommy, more Doctor Cook uh, based. Um, so, what were you working on in, in Bochum, and what are you uh, taking with you um, as you move on to Kingston, where you're going to be a, a, a post-doctoral researcher at, uh, in the Surveillance Studies Center at Queens. Thanks,
0: man. That's a good question. <clears throat> and I appreciate you asking because it'll help me get it straight in my head as well because there's been a lot of transitions and um, slight changes in trajectory for my research. In Germany, I was doing a, a theoretical project that explored mobile operating systems from the perspective of data management. Not necessarily an operating system on a smartphone from the perspective of how to provide user content or how to like facilitate a platform that enables an ease of access for applications and to get on the internet. But I wanted to think about it from a governance standpoint. In what ways could iOS on an Apple device, for example, be thought of as a system that seeks to monopolize data flow within itself? I've always wondered about this, especially on an Apple device, because Apple is heralded as the purveyor of digital privacy. They don't sell data. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really bizarre for me because Apple makes so much money. So what is it about Apple and their their situatedness in the marketplace that makes them so powerful? We know it's marketing. We know it's advertising. We know that they work with a ton of application developers and that that marketplace on its own terms is huge. They make a ton of money off of their marketplace for Mm -hmm. selling applications. They get a cut. On everything that's paid for, yeah, it's not the data; it's what what they make off of these downloads, right? So, I wanted to try and tease apart the politics of this a little bit more. So, my proposal was to um, revisit some old like history of technology, history of science, ways of thinking, like uh, revisiting cybernetics, cybernetic theory. And I wanted to see if I could um, think about this uh, in terms of like an epistemology, a way of thinking about operating systems. Could I build, for example, a cybernetic epistemology of, of Apple mobile devices and their operating systems? And so what I came up with, after looking very closely at a number of different dimensions of iOS and the way in which Apple worked with application developers, new application developers, was that there are these these mechanisms that encouraged people users and application developers to think about data in a very specific way in the way that that reified data as content data mm. not as metadata and there is an important distinction that needs to be made here that I'm going to talk about for just a second content data is are the words of an email If you were to hold out a newspaper in front of you, you could see the name of the article. You could see the title that that particular article has and the name of the newspaper.
1: The substance of a tweet. The substance of a tweet. Yeah, exactly. 140 to now, I guess, 280 uh, characters.
0: That's content data. And when you look at Apple's privacy policy, that's the kind of data they're interested in protecting.
1: Well, that's you, mostly because people care about that. For sure. You tell somebody that that's exactly. basically spying, isn't somebody,
0: it? If somebody steals your, your visa number, that's that's mm. content data. Mm-hmm. We don't want that, and that's what Apple seeks to protect, and they're quite good at that. But what's problematic for me with developing a system that uses visual techniques and uh, linguistic mechanisms that encourages users and application developers to think about privacy specifically through content data is that you purposely omit a completely different dimension, a completely different realm of data that is existing Mm -hmm. and is far more ubiquitous and far more problematic to both application developers and users on the one hand and also privacy on the other hand. And I'm trying to figure out why the hell doesn't Apple talk about metadata in their privacy policy? When you look at it very carefully, they actually purposely omit this. We encrypt your content data. We take care of that for you, but the metadata the math of the data, the number of times, for example, the word the shows up in that same newspaper that I was just talking about. That's that's metadata, the data about data. That stuff is more important to digital privacy than content because that's the kind of data we've been discovering in surveillance studies that we've been theorizing about gets you in trouble with police officers. That's the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble when you travel.
1: And that's the stuff like Edward Snowden was talking. That's
0: exactly what Snowden was talking about. So the reason why I was doing the cybernetic epistemology of Apple's products, of its operating system and some dimensions of its website was to discover what role it's playing in encouraging application developers and users to think about data in a specific way, but also to distract people from thinking about the relationship between metadata and digital privacy, and so, so, you, that, so that's you what think, I was
1: doing this summer. So you think the omission of metadata from, say, a terms of service agreement that we all scroll through, don't even read, and sign off, so we can start playing Pokemon Go, uh, <laughs> or whatever app we want to <laughs> we want to use, uh, that the omission of metadata or big data, however you want to conceptualize that uh, that notion, mm-hmm. that the omission of that is actually like purposeful and They're they're trying to hide that they're collecting this data?
0: I don't think it's an explicit omission. Mm. I think when we talk about politics of privacy policies, we're still only talking about one dimension of politics. And that dimension is still important. I agree with you, and I like where you're going with this, Derek. What I think is happening inside of the privacy policy is by encouraging people to think about content data, or at least to focus on it, they'd cultivate a very specific way of thinking about digital privacy that fits Apple's corporate agenda mm. as best as possible. Mm. If they make, for example, application developers accountable for how content data is protected and handled, then Apple can provide the user a reliable guarantee to digital privacy. But what they can't do is encourage those same application developers to focus on metadata Because metadata is central to the capital flow that all of these applications are situated within. I challenge anybody right now to go on their phone if they have an Apple device or steal one from your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother or even a student just for a moment and have a look at the application marketplace and see whether or not you can find an application that doesn't have ads or micro purchases. You're not going to find one. It didn't used to be the
1: case five years micro ago. Micro purchases are becoming just absolutely pervasive. It's and, huge and so annoying. Like if you want to play FIFA nowadays, uh, it's basically you pay seventy bucks for the uh, for the game, but that's not the end of it. If you want to you want to have team of the season, player of the season, all these right? different things, it's all micro transactions.
0: If you want the financial buyout and career mode to build the team you want, you got to pay five ninety nine to get it for the second time because you already used it once in the first season. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work in your favor. Yeah. Now, like I said earlier, Apple has nothing to do with making money off of data, yeah. especially metadata. They but, do, that's developers not, do. but application yeah. developers are intimately connected to massive third-party networks that profit off of this stuff. So if you can encourage users, if you can guide them to think about privacy through the lens of content data and not the math, They are no longer relating the notion of threat or data theft to the math of how they're using their device. It's all content. You protect and you colonize the metadata flows Mm. by getting people to think about threat and digital privacy violation by externalizing it. It can't possibly be Apple and it cannot possibly be the application developer that's impeding upon the things you say when you communicate with people or your credit card number because that's protected, but the math never becomes a focal point in the, the general purview of an everyday user or even an application developer, as I argued this summer, because they never see the metadata. It's not something that we can visualize. It's not something that we, we can make legible. If you can't see it, you can't understand its relationship to your daily usage, Mm -hmm. and assumptions about who you are. And it's precisely those assumptions that I think are important when we're engaging in discourses about human security. This is a privileged conversation for you and I to have. Absolutely, We are not leaving Syria right now. We're not fleeing Afghanistan. We certainly did not have our retinas scanned on a biometric technology by a Marine seven to 10 years ago in Iraq. Yeah. Because those people are getting in trouble when they try to come into the Western world. When they try to cross the border in the U.S., they're flagged. And if we take Snowden's revelation seriously, there must be a relationship between massive amounts of metadata being collected from any source possible to play a role in adjudicating somebody's foreignness factor about whether or not they're going to be a problem mm-hmm. for the United States when they cross the border. And this is why I'm doing this research. This is why I'm interested in theorizing cybernetically. And and the simplest way I can put it then is this. Cybernetics is a study of control and communication. If we can start thinking about these mobile technologies through that lens as analysts, we no longer focus specifically on direct mechanisms of, uh, you know, data theft or surveillance we start thinking about the roles these technologies plays in guiding us to perform in a specific way and as a consequence of encouraging users and application developers to perform and to exist and use that device in a specific way they stop looking around them they stop being reflexive they stop asking questions about what's in the blind spot what is in you know, the, the 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 background that they're not thinking about. And it's precisely these metadata flows that I think the governance mechanisms inherent in these technologies are not allowing people to take seriously.
1: And they're, they're kind of downplaying them. Like you said, they're omitting them. And by omitting them, we don't ever see them.
0: You mentioned this point about like the explicitness inside of the Apple policies, yeah, which sure. I thought was a really great point, man. That's very astute of you. And I appreciate you pushing back there because it's not like, they're purposely omitting metadata in order mm. to like trick people. Mm-hmm. But I think the even implicit or accidental choice not to think about metadata seriously yeah. or even have a conversation on their website about it is a problem. Yeah. So the other side of this then is how else could people be encouraged to perform or behave in a certain way cybernetically? When you open up an Apple device and you start messing around in the settings, you see sliders. Mm-hmm. So this is a great example yeah. of what I'm talking about. Do I want to allow this app to access the microphone? Yes or no? Great. You've put the user in control of managing content data, but it's done in absolutes. The application either gets everything that it wants, content and metadata, or it gets nothing. The either or dichotomy of this situation now is entirely unproductive in terms of teaching that user about the value and the implications of data flow because they can't see it and you either kill the process or you let it do what it wants indefinitely.
1: Yeah, if you can't see something, you can't do anything about it.
0: That slider ought to have a mechanism that can be negotiated or discussed. Like, why can't you explore the nature of the behavior of that mechanism? I used this analogy the other day when I was talking to somebody who asked a very similar question as you about what I'm going to be doing in this new project. And I said, as a sociologist, it's easy for me to study human behavior, social behavior. If I were to study, for example, something like a highway, Mm -hmm. if I were to sit above the 401 at the 407 cutoff in Milton, for example, for 24 hours, let's call it a week. Even I can render all of the bodies and vehicles and technologies and life flows into data. I can color code them. I can count them. I can situate that data in terms of time of day. I can build my own metadata from content data. That's easy for me to do. And from that data collection, I can theorize and I can build arguments about, for example, what people are doing for a living, how their driving behavior or their reaction time reflects whether or not they're distracted or whether they're focusing. I can tell you all sorts of interesting things as a sociologist, but the crucial turning point for me as a, as a researcher is the ability to see the cars. I can't see inside the cars without halting those cars, which is a security intervention that I'm not interested in doing as a sociologist. But I can... An,
1: that sounds like content data.
0: Yeah, it, it is content data. And I can still produce my own metadata if I was into that sort of mm-hmm. thing as, as an after or as an aside. But the point is that I can see the highway, Derek. Yeah, That's the yeah. point I'm making. That's yeah. the emphasis here. The, the flow and the ability to codify allows me to study because I can see it. That's hugely important for empirical research, and it's a huge problem for us as surveillance studies scholars. We tend not to be able to see the flow of discrete data, which is precisely what's going on inside of the privacy security settings in an Apple iPhone. Users are not encouraged to think about the necessity for seeing data. And I saw firsthand what happens when you show somebody metadata flows in real time a, a researcher that i got in touch with in the university of Darmstadt this summer did some research for the federal government and there was a, a one small component of that research where they showed metadata flows in real time to some researchers. sorry to some some end users and they were shocked and it's precisely at that moment of shock that there's realization and an ability to discuss privacy consciousness and technical literacy in a very meaningful, productive way. In the kind of way that t- that makes people who believe in the argument that users don't care about their data and their privacy to shut bullshit. up. That's bullshit.
1: That's a bullshit argument.
0: And I've been hearing it a lot.
1: Yeah.
0: I tend not to encounter professional researchers who actually believe that users care about their data. The essence of my theoretical work this summer was really to get people to stop talking that way. If we can see the data, we can change the terms of the debate, and we can really start talking about mediating passage and encouraging privacy consciousness by studying things that we are not supposed to see. Smartphones are designed not to allow us to see metadata flow, and that's a huge problem for digital privacy.
1: Yeah, and, and visualizing that as the first step, right? I think so. Visualize you you need to make something visible in order to talk about it in order to change it in order and I think you're you're bang on. We don't in surveillance studies from what I've read very little is like empirical. Very little is like here is the actual tracing of what Snowden is talking about. Here is actually what's going on. What I see a lot is here's the input and then here's the output. The output's real bad and we know that data is <laughs> coming from somewhere, but we know nothing in between. So everything in between is kind of pencil crayoned in and is shaded in by surveillance scholars in a very conspira- con- kind of conspiracy format where it's we know it's deep state and it's, it's all part of the governance structure and we're all being controlled by the man or the the algorithm <laughs> and there's not a lot of you know like concreteness to that shading in uh, and I'm, I'm curious is like this where you're going it sounds like this is where you're going in in your future work
0: in a lot of ways the work that I did last or this past summer was a little bit ass over tea kettle but it was hugely important for developing professionally and developing a project that's meaningful yeah I have the distinct privilege of working with Dr. David Lyon as my supervisor for the next two years, who is arguably the father of surveillance studies. He's a wonderfully gifted scholar in surveillance and privacy. I've studied his work
1: for years. I had as of f- probably many people who listen many, to Yeah, I'm podcast, sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've met computer scientists in Germany who know mm-hmm. his name very, very well. I also met a visiting scholar from Japan who knows his work forwards and backwards better than I do, translated into Japanese. Unbelievable. Anyways, I had my first phone call with Dr. Lyon back in May, and this was two months or so after I found out that I won this funding award from our federal government, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, to do this two-year postdoctoral project with him. Now, that proposal was to do the theoretical project I just told you about. Mm. That's what I won for.
1: To, to sit atop the 407 and 401 <laughs> in Milton.
0: Yeah, and pretend the moving cars are bits of metadata, something like that. That I won the funding to do this theoretical mm. project. And I also won the funding at the Center of Internet uh, uh, for Advanced Internet Studies in Bochum Kites. to do that same project. But before I went out and I had this conversation with David, he said to me, remind me again of what it is that you want to do. And you have to imagine this is a very busy guy I mean, he's always got things on the go. This is a guy who has won every award and accolade this country has to offer. And then some, he's not going to remember what it is that I sent to him in September. So I explained to him, Oh yeah, cybernetics and iOS. And, uh, bottom-up activism and jailbreaking and oscillation and feedback and time and all these other dimensions no of cybernetics and noise that I didn't mention in the last 30 minutes or so that I've been gabbing on here. And he said, well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm sure we can find somebody at the center that's interested in that. And I said wow. to myself,
1: uh, he tossed you aside.
0: Not really. I mean, no, no, he didn't do that. That's not fair. He, he said to me, this isn't what I do. It's an STS project, which is hugely important for the future of surveillance studies, and it's going to be great. But what else do you have in mind?
1: What else are you interested in?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I I was a little surprised by that question. It really challenged me as a professional. So I said, The project that matters to me, if there's a second project, and I'd really like to do a second project with you, is to track metadata. I want to be able to rip my smartphone open. I want to see what happens from the moment of inception of a small piece of data like raw GPS coordinates. Mm -hmm. And I wanna see that data move. Mm -hmm. I wanna see it move from the sensor through the operating system because the application made the request to the operating system. May I have permission, please, to see that raw data? I wanna handle it, I wanna use it because I'm a video game and I wanna make money off of that coordinate. Mm -hmm. I want to see that data then move through the application. I want to see how many times it's been translated, how many times it's transformed, how many times it's stored, duplicated, triplicated. I want to see it move into a marketing network. I want to see how algorithms in the cloud treat it. Then I want to see whether or not it ends up in a border and plays a role in somebody's security profile. That project is called A Day in the Life of Metadata, and that's what I'm going to be doing for the next two years.
1: Now, see, this is fascinating. This is wild because like this is typically not the purview of a sociologist someone who's interested in society to to get this this technical and in many ways this is exactly what's missing from surveillance though, because it's very theoretical very epistemological let's talk about pie in the sky ideas let's talk about rhizomes let's talk about all mobius these strips mobius strips that we've mentioned a million times but no one's tracing the flow of this data out I couldn't even begin to think of how I'm going to, how I would even do that. Like I know nothing about my phone. I know nothing about the, I know that there's a screen that I'm touching that I can scroll up and down and that there's electronics inside. There's a whole bunch of sensors. But I'm pretty like uh, technologically savvy. Like I, I can understand. I don't
0: know, man. I watched you hit that default button like 55 times before we started.
1: <laughs> well, audio engineering is <laughs> not, my, uh, not my strong suit. That's for sure. But I do think I have a general idea of processors, um, different uh, forms of uh, technology that go into these things, at least more than a, a lay citizen, I think. I would hope. So. You're a capable guy. Yeah.
0: I'm also a capable guy, but together we're not capable enough to, to track no, the creation it of metadata.
1: Like, it sounds like you're going to have to get someone at Apple, an engineer at a, several Apple engineers, to come and Which and won't talk. happen. No, it won't happen.
0: My last presentation in Germany was a preview of the concept of this project, a day in the life of metadata. Shout
1: out. I was there via... Uh, skype you were there There, you were present digitally and
0: your presence was hugely hugely appreciated man and this is precisely why i want you to get involved as a team member the only way to do this project is to put together a relatively large interdisciplinary research team and i need the people that you just mentioned am i going to get somebody from apple hell no no. They have no incentive to do no. this.
1: And they're making more money. doing. They're making
0: else. way more money. They're actually making money do this. I'm getting a little bit of money to do this to your postdoc, but I don't know that I can take money out of my own pocket to pay somebody to help me do this. And as I learned very quickly this summer, talking to world-class IT security professionals, computer engineers, data forensic analysts, no one person is trained enough technically to comprehend all of the processes, that I need to figure out. Yeah. An assembly language coding expert would need to sit down with me to figure out how exactly binaries move down an electrical channel in a smartphone, physically speaking, yeah. to go to a GPS sensor after it's treated through sandboxing encryption systems in the operating system. <laughs> to render a piece of raw data, one small piece of coordinate data, and give it back to the application. That sounds simple, but we're talking about
1: it actually no, hundreds I, I of processes happening in a simple. split second. I don't think that sounds simple at all. It's incredibly
0: complicated. Yeah. And everybody I've talked to about this in the hard sciences have said this. I spoke to Dr. David Lee, who's a computer engineer at the University of Toronto yesterday about this, and he said, I love your project. It's extremely ambitious. Mm -hmm. You're going to need a PhD who is highly trained in one of five to 10 tools that exist in the world that are created by very, very specific teams that can actually do the kind of thing that you're talking about. So I'm going to need a team of four to five experts trained in very, very different things that can help me track a small piece of metadata, whether it's the dimension of a photo or a GPS coordinate or one bit of information from a microphone or a call log and track it as far as we can and, and deliberately draw out as explicitly as possible the number of times that information changes.
1: And how it's translated.
0: Once we can make the movement visible and the changes in translations legible, then we can conduct very important social analyses that take very seriously questions of interpretation and manipulation of metadata. We get to start figuring out precisely what it is that prediction algorithms are doing for marketers and security and surveillance people as two completely distinctly different groups of people interested in this data with different interests and different, different motives. And we can start relating this back to the implications of daily casual smartphone usage in terms of things you cannot see. Mm -hmm. If we make some of this, even some of this pathway legible and visible, I think as sociologists, we're going to have a lot more to say, not just about Snowden, Mm -hmm. but also about whether or not certain people living in a certain part of the world ought to buy an Android or an Apple if they're planning on visiting the U.S. in the next five years.
1: And use particular apps. And use particular and applications, particular right? You
0: know, there's there's a, a wonderful movement of open-source designers, engineers out there who are now designing open-source smartphones that are specifically interested in in making data flow visible and legible, not to, just to us as analysts, but also to users. Because they fundamentally believe that if people can start seeing and comprehending a little bit about the nature of data movement and interpretation and manipulation, it's going to change how and whether you look for an extra five items on eBay. Yeah, It really, really will. I really fundamentally believe that. And if we're going to have a convincing paradigm shift in the sociology of technology in general but surveillance studies in particular we have to do this project needs to happen
1: if the ultimate goal is to have uh, an informed citizen an informed um, citizenry capable of understanding how their metadata is used you first have to make it legible make it visible because it's not visible and it's not even talked about in it, it never i imagine i shouldn't say never but i imagine that if you were to open the terms of service of pokemon go right now there would not be a, a metadata section but i bet you niantic which is the developer of pokemon <laughs> go is collecting metadata Absolutely. on trends of um how many people are buying micro purchases or are doing or making micro purchases or doing certain things and even more it's really interesting cuz pokemon go is actively Collecting like Geo, that's why I use it as a great example, because it's a a coordinate-based, it's a mapping-based application. It's it's collecting your movement. And some people
0: listening right now are probably wondering why that matters. Mm. Who cares if Niantic has your GPS coordinate data? I mean, put yourself in my shoes for a second, man. How do you respond to that?
1: My immediate first thought is like, I don't care, personally. Well, I do, because I know that it matters for others. You are completely right. These discussions are privileged discussions. We are sitting here in an office as, uh, as a professor and a postdoc at uh, major institutions, universities, white males, who are do nothing that's particularly um, risky in, in the realm of, Um, criminal behavior or or political uh, opposition, but others aren't. Other people who might not be as privileged as us aren't doing those things and might signal certain things to governments or to a variety of different stakeholders that might actually have their data used, who might form part of these risk profiles that get sent to CBSA, to the border, or and that's what's at stake here, I think. It's not, they're not collecting data on you per se, Tommy, unless you're in the purview of a CSIS or of a, uh, of a um, CIA or NSA, uh, which they might be collecting very specific content data on you. But, Perhaps. but what is more likely happening is that your data is being used at the metadata level or the aggregate level to create risk profiles, which are then... Used at the border, the uh, CBSA uses this idea of multiplicity of indicator that I've talked about on this podcast before. That there's a if there's a multiplicity of indicators of risk for a variety of different behaviors, that person is flagged, and that is how I think the metadata is is being used to create those profiles that inform individual decision making. Is that a sort of correct assumption? I or? would. S- I would say absolutely. If we take any of the literature
0: about Snowden in the social sciences and humanities seriously within the last few years alone, we would have to entertain the notion that if the NSA is collecting bulk metadata, which we know they did, factually speaking, with phone calls, which they said they stopped doing in mid-2016, then we need to intersect those observations with the kind of analyses we're seeing out of, for example, the Journal of International Political Sociology. One of my favorite special issues ever produced anywhere in any journal was spearheaded by my supervisor, Dr. Lyon, Didier Bijot, Marika DeGuda, Louisa Moore, and a handful of others
1: was some big, big hitters,
0: big, big hitters. And Louisa Moore and Marika Deguda in particular talked about the way in which the NSA's focus on the sweeping mass bulk collection and storage and algorithmic treatment of just metadata from smartphones and internet usage on a daily basis paints what's called a horizon of insecurity. I think I added the in in front of security myself. I think they refer to it as horizon of security. Mm. But I'm going to stick with horizon of insecurity. And it's an important distinction precisely because it's an indictment of the practice itself. The NSA hasn't thwarted any threats. Evidently speaking, there's no no proof to show that mass data collection in any capacity, content or otherwise, has thwarted an actual terrorist Mm. event yet. But it has gotten at least... A million people worldwide on the terrorism watch list that we also know this horizon of insecurity is important because it doesn't focus on individuals as you said they don't care about that what they care about is the kind of palette they can create as if what was that artist name with the bushy hair bob something You know the guy I'm talking about? He's like a famous internet meme. No, no, I have no. Bushy hair, bob, super optimistic guy painting trees. I'm just gonna add a little blue up here (laughs) and a little green down here, and there you go. Anybody can be a painter. We'll soak in the NSA. It's like artwork. Governmentality, like Foucault said, is an art. If you have all of these sets of data, all of these different colors, so to speak, from society about how they use their smartphones and the internet. You have an unlimited palette of different tools and uh, modalities of expression that you can put onto a paint board to tell a different story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important point then. You can paint a horizon that tells a story about what the security issues of tomorrow could look like, but that story can be radically different depending upon which databases you use and what certain governors and certain algorithms' preferences are for certain kinds of color. If the NSA is indeed interested in using bulk metadata to create a story or a narrative or an easily accessible picture that's displayed in an Excel sheet for border guard at the Canada-US crossing, then we have to take seriously the implications of just touching your phone on a daily basis because it is that math that's being used as a distinct color inside of that horizon. It's not about you, but it's about people who are assumed to be like you. To live in London, Ontario, Canada, sit in an office to talk about surveillance on a podcast versus somebody who had their retina scanned in southern Baghdad after the second U.S. invasion Because the Marines did not want people getting humanitarian aid more than once in a certain period of time. And it's those same people that are having trouble traveling because they had their eyes scanned. That's not just about content data. That's about metadata. There are people fleeing Syria right now, trying desperately to get into Europe. And Germany just launched its first ever cybersecurity agency that is focusing on metadata how is it that people's smartphone usage as they're fleeing a war zone that is heavily monitored by western government security and surveillance agencies going to be treated when they cross the border for the first time we know nothing about those people they're going to say but their smartphones say everything this is a serious problem that we have to take seriously and if we're going to continue to do it as as scholars in this field we have to ground it empirically And I just want to make a little bit of a contribution by beginning that data tracing process.
1: Mm. And that is how you get to the project, a day in the life of metadata.
0: Yeah, the one that's empirical and the one that has to happen before you go back and do the theory. So, you know, I think part of the bittersweetness of being back here is, you know, um, being willing enough to put the project that I secured the funding with on hold and convincing myself that it's okay to do this empirical project. I'm not um, <clears throat> hugely experienced in tracking data, but I imagine mm. I'm going to learn a lot very quickly in the next six months.
1: Yeah, yeah well, well, good luck as you head and leave us again in London <laughs> and, and go just down the way this time, though, just a couple it's hours away. It's a bit away. of a
0: hike. I've heard that highway is quite treacherous on the So winter. I'm going to tell you,
1: we're, maybe we'll close off with this, If you've ever been to Toronto, uh, I assume some listeners haven't, Toronto is very bad with traffic. People (laughs) have called it very similar, or people have said it's very similar to L.A.
0: I've heard people personally say it's the worst in North America now.
1: Well, then, trying to travel from London, Ontario, to Kingston, Ontario, on, say, a Friday afternoon, is my nightmare. And I will never do it. You studied up in Ottawa. I've done that drive several times in a variety of ways. Uh, not ne- I, I've never done London to Ottawa. Um, and I'm not doing. We're, we're going to, to Ottawa on the weekend. And we're flying. because Of course you are. I am not doing that drive. Of course you are. Um, but we've driven across and closer to, from London to places close to Kingston. Belleville, which is like an hour away from, from Kingston. And I no, I will never do that because of the traffic. The traffic is brutal, but we're it's 2018 and we have microphones and we have computers. <laughs> we do. So hopefully we can meet on a weekly basis, Tommy, to do a nice podcast.
0: We can definitely do that. It's a bit of a drive. It is a pain in the butt, no doubt. But my postdoc is flexible.
1: Yeah, we're going to make it work.
0: We're going to make it work. I'm going to be on two weeks here, two weeks there. My fiance's here, my family's here, you're here. Yep. I miss you. I miss, I miss you too, buddy. miss Dr. Muller across the hallway. Listen, I want to sign off by saying yeah. thank you. You have done an absolutely incredible job keeping this awesome podcast afloat all summer. There were numerous times where I disappeared into the Black Forest or the Alpine Peaks, and I just... I was just sitting I here in London. I couldn't keep up my end of the podcast. There were times when the summer got absolutely crazy, and I've, I've got a couple sitting on the back burner, barring some technical issues aside. Hmm. I have a few more podcasts to punch out, but, man, you've done such an absolutely incredible job. The people you interviewed were amazing.
1: Yeah, it's not me. It's mostly people like uh, Neta, people like Ju Young, people like Carla who agreed to come on. Thank you to you um, because uh, all those podcasts were really fun.
0: We are going to get this thing going again. Oh yeah! It's going to be routine. and I'm absolutely stoked to do it. And my final thank you is to all of our listeners. You guys are wonderful. The emails, the tweets, the support has been absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. So thanks for sticking with us and being patient. And we're certainly looking forward to talking again with you soon.
1: And if you haven't already, please give us a follow at WTNcast. Or you can follow myself at Derek Krim, Or you can follow Dr. Tommy Cook at Thomas N. Cook. Is that correct? Thomas N. Cook with an E. Thomas N. Cook with an E. You got to do something about that Twitter handle. It needs to change to like Cook Surveillance or something. Something easier. I could even just drop the E. Drop the N, man. Like, what is that?
0: I don't know. <laughs> or some Tommy, silly Tommy idiocrine.
1: Cook or something. You got to do something about it.
0: <laughs> Tommy Cook works. We'll, we'll talk about that in our next podcast. <laughs>
1: Definitely. Well, until next time. Uh, Keep listening for the noise and expect more episodes.
0: Sounds good. Cheers.
1: Cheers.